biggest piece of advice I would give to anyone who sees themselves as being an entrepreneur is this, occupy your bridges. You've heard the expression many, many times about people who are too big for their britches. I think there's a number of people who are too small for their britches because they haven't figured out what their britches are. And once you figure out what your britches are, what is that thing that you know? What's the problem that has bugged you your whole life that you have a solution for? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mazda. I just drove the new Mazda 6 and it's buttery smooth, powerful with an optional turbocharged engine and more. I also like the new CX-9. We shoot on location every week and it's got plenty of room for all of our gear. It definitely feels like a premium kind of driving experience, but it's the attention to detail that stands out for me. You can really tell the Mazda designers have put their heart and souls into these vehicles. You can check them out at MazdaUSA.com. All right, now let's get into our episode. Hi, I'm Danny Meyer, CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Danny, thanks for having us at your place. Welcome to Mayalino. I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? I have no idea how I got this job. It, it's amazing. I feel like every step of my career, which now goes back to really 1984, when I was working in an Italian seafood restaurant, uh, not more than a block away from here as an assistant lunch manager, but every step has just been an accident. And it's just been trying to decide what are the things I should say yes to, and maybe even more importantly, what are the things I should say no thank you to. Can we roll back time just a little bit? Let's go back to young Danny when you're growing up. Did you always think that you would be in the restaurant business? No, I, I never thought I would be in the restaurant business because that's not something that people talked about as a viable career choice. You know, my dad was a businessman, an entrepreneur. His father was a businessman, entrepreneur. My mom's dad was a businessman, entrepreneur. My mom was in the art gallery business. It's just not anything we spoke about, but in retrospect, it all adds up because for whatever reason, I remember just about every single meal I had growing up, cooked with my dad all the time. Our dog was named Ratatouille. We had French people living in our home because my dad's business was selling tours throughout France primarily. And without even knowing it, I was getting this education, not only in food and we always had a bottle of wine on the table. That was not something most families had in St. Louis back uh, when I was growing up. But the other thing that I got an education in was hospitality because we had the, the privilege, probably because of my dad's travel business, of staying in really nice country inns run by families in France. And the places were more memorable almost for how they made you feel even than you know, how beautiful they were. They weren't, they were homier than they were beautiful. I'm curious though, like, um, you have brothers and sisters, you have come from a big family, small, medium? Three, three of us, I'm the middle of three. Okay, middle child, okay. Uh, and did your parents have any ideas, like, you know, dad's like, I want you to be a lawyer, or mom said, I want you to go into journalism, like, did you have any feedback from both sides, or? No, I had almost no feedback. The only thing I remember hearing my entire childhood was, Danny, why can't you live up to your potential? And I didn't really know what my potential was or what that meant. Yeah, where was the benchmark? Like, based on what? Well, probably based on the fact that 
everyone in the family was really good in school. I was not all that great in school. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I didn't get into any college right off the bat. I, fortunately, one of the schools I applied to didn't reject me. They waitlisted me, and that was Trinity College. And really glad they accepted me because I really had a good, good experience there. But I just was holding back and holding back and holding back. And as a middle child. I think the, the thing that was important for me more than anything, and I've probably unwittingly put this to use in my career, I wanted everyone to get along. You know, there were family discussions every night, and I was always the guy trying to just make sure that at the table we could all get along. Yeah, it, it paints a really good picture. What a crazy, tumultuous time, you know, civil rights movement, landing on the moon, you know, all that sort of thing is happening yeah. at the same time. So fast forward, then, you're... you're your food career is evolving. You're you're taking it all in. You're maybe uh, learning from experience, and you're you're starting to absorb some of the environment around you. You're being nurtured and possibly, you know, unknowingly groomed for a possible career in food. How did you get? How did it get more towards? Well, it it took a while. I mean, I was always the guy um, in my family, amongst my friends who looked at every opportunity to travel as an opportunity to learn about people via what they ate. And I did this in Europe, I did this in the United States. I started devouring every piece of news I could about restaurants. So you got to travel then? I got to travel a lot. Um, I had a job right after college working as a salesman selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters. And I did that for three years. Um, not only did I make really good commissions and Fortunately, put a lot of those commissions into the company's stock, which was a public stock that I think six tupled, sex tupled during the time I was there. But I got to travel with that company. And even if I wasn't traveling, let's say I had a day in New York City traveling to some of the neighborhoods with the worst shoplifting, I would get in my little company car. I picked a little baby blue rabbit, and I would make sure to eat at some local ethnic restaurant in that neighborhood just because I wanted to learn. Yeah, sampling the local flavor. And um, so I was just getting this, this education and it, the thing that put me over the edge was actually that this voice in my head said, you should go do this law school thing. And so I took the Stanley Kaplan class to get prepared for it. No interest in being a lawyer whatsoever, but it was I was going down Should Avenue mm -hmm. instead of Passion Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I was just really, really lucky that on the night before taking the LSATs, I was out to dinner with my aunt and uncle, and my uncle told me I was a damn fool for doing something I didn't really want to do. And it took him to actually tell me when I said, well, what else would I do? It took him to say, you got to be crazy. All I've ever heard you talk about your whole life is restaurants. But I think the lesson in that, not just for me, but for a lot of people, is your passion exists. You may not know it. In fact, you may not even have any idea what it is because sometimes we are the last person to see that, that magic, that gift that, that we have. I don't know that my uncle understood any more than I did that I also had a gift for hospitality, for caring how people felt, but he did know that I loved restaurants and that I loved cooking and I loved food. And the good news is I never applied to one law school. What I did do was immediately enroll in a restaurant management class that 
at a school that probably doesn't even exist anymore. But that served the purpose it needed to, and it, it set me down the path. And uh, I got a job at a seafood restaurant just a block and a half away from here. Met the woman who would become my wife. Met the man who would become the chef of Union Square Cafe and, and a culinary director of Union Square Hospitality Group. Met the neighborhood that would be the home to where I brought up a family and created a really nice restaurant business. I love that story. There's so much that I, there that I want to unpack further because there's a lot of great little mini gold nugget lessons there. Um, let's start with my f my first curiosity, which is the, you know, how do how do you know how to find your passion? How do you know like what you're good at? I mean, you had fortunately an uncle that was a game changer, right? You're at a crossroads, and literally changed your life with that feedback. Um, how, if you don't have someone in that, like that in your life, if you don't have a mentor or someone who's observant and cares, how do you know, if you're a young person, or you know, I guess age doesn't matter, how do you know and how do you find that passion? I think, yeah, it's such a good question and you just gave me an idea for a new business, which is really to try to be the Houdini to unlock people's passion because it's there in everybody. I heard a great expression this morning that I'd never heard before, um, but that there's genius in everybody. Yeah. And if you were a fish and you had spent your whole life climbing trees, you'd, you'd feel like you were pretty unsuccessful for your whole life. But I'd like to see a squirrel swim in the ocean. And yeah, I, I just feel like every single one of us has that thing that they're really good at. Maybe the first start is to acknowledge what you're not great at, but say the headline is I have genius and I have magic and my job is to go hunt it down and figure it out. And if I can't, then maybe someone else can hold up the mirror for me who I trust. But the most important thing is to not do what I did for a good half my my life up till I was probably, probably till I was about 25. I was really focused on the things I couldn't do. Why did my brother and sister get into all these great schools and I couldn't? You know, why, why did I take piano lessons from a guy who would always say, why can't you be as good of a piano player as your friend? Yeah. It just, it doesn't, in a weird way, it, it's motivating because it gets you a little angry. But I think the key thing is just to say, it's there. If I can't see it in the mirror, who can I turn to who can hold up the mirror for me? Yeah, I guess it brings up another question now. Uh, we're going to change the, the timeline of this story a little bit. I'm going to flash forward till now. Like, so does that positive reinforcement? And I think of like uh, uh, Coach Pete Carroll, you know, who coaches the Seattle Seahawks. P Coach Carroll is renowned for his positive vibe. You know, he's only positive feedback. He even feels good when you can't get the ball in from the five-yard line. Yeah, and they, and they lose the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, so does that positivity, like focusing on strengths, not weaknesses, or like your piano teacher telling you why can't you, is that... Has that spilled over into the way that you manage people? I think so. I mean, I, I think that each one of us is wired in natural ways that are really hard to reverse. Um, I'm really grateful that I am not a skeptic. I'm grateful that I'm not a cynic. I'm grateful that I, I see every quarter full glass as if it's half full. You know, I know people who see a full glass as if it's half full. I see a quarter full glass as if it's almost completely full. And I think that as an entrepreneur, it's a good thing to be upsided 
as opposed to downsided. I, I don't really do a good job of seeing what could go wrong. Yeah, and I guess you bring up a really good point. I, guess, I think contextually those traits suit an entrepreneur very well. Uh, but actually I'm really grateful that the guy who makes pacemakers or the airplane I flew in here from LA on is a worry wart. Like, you know, he or she is constantly like attention to detail and expecting everything to go wrong and you know, and she's constantly reevaluating and remeasuring and re you know, like I appreciate that in that area. Yeah, well I appreciate that I surround myself with people who do the same thing. I yeah. mean I I know that what we do in the restaurant business is not rocket science, it's not brain surgery, but guess what? There's a whole lot of trust that our guests put in us that the product we make is something they're actually going to put into their body. So let's talk and, about that. And so we better have people who think things through really well as well. Yeah, so let's talk about building trust. So, you know, um, in today's economy, trust and attention are two really important assets. You know, attention, that's kind of why we do the show. You know, we have an audience, a growing uh, number of people who pay attention to what we're doing and they, they're watching this because you're here and attention is a great asset. Um, let's talk about building trust. So how do you do that in, in your restaurant business? And, you know, we know that you're famous for, for Shake Shack and, and you know, uh, lots of other restaurant concepts um, here and everywhere. But uh, I would assume that it's a philosophy that spans the entire brand, correct? The yeah. hospitality, which we call enlightened hospitality, yeah is a common feature of everything we do, whether it's an Italian restaurant or barbecue or yeah. burgers or well, I want to talk about building black truffles, I don't care what it is. I want to talk about building trust. So how Building trust is really the same family as, as uh, offering hospitality because we define hospitality as something that exists only if the person on the receiving end truly believes you're on their side. And I think the same thing can be said of trust. I cannot imagine feeling like we could build trust if you didn't feel like I was on your side. And I do believe that trust is probably along with time, one of the greatest commodities or luxuries, depending on how you want to look at it, that exists, period. Because yeah. you can't have enough of either. And it's really easy, it's really, really easy to squander both of those. And I think that every single human transaction is either building trust or perhaps destroying trust. And I try to think about this all the time, just walking around the office. If I look someone in the eye and smile and say nothing, that's actually building trust. If I walk by someone in the office and am consumed with my own thoughts and don't look at them, I actually might be diminishing trust between us. Because it just might be that that person wonders if I'm actually on their side. Yeah, we've played the whole perception game. You know, is he mad at me? Did I do something wrong? Or why is he such a jerk? And people fact, fill yeah. vacuum with uncharitable assumptions all the time. I agree with that statement. I think, well, it, it at least it opens up the possibilities. You know, if you're a glass half full kind of person, you know, maybe it's not all bad, but I definitely think your point is well taken. Um, so let's go and let's talk about the F word a little bit, fear and failure, um, and let's co stay connected to trust a little bit. Have there been times when you've breached that trust on some level and you felt, uh-oh, you know, we made a huge mistake, 
you know, overshot this, or we did something that offended that person, so we totally did a 180. Can you think of any of these kind of case study-like experiences where you've had those failures? Well, I think we've done it all the time. We've done it with our staff members unwittingly. We've done it with guests unwittingly. So let's break it down each one. And the reason I ask is because, you know, a lot of people who watch this show, too, they're in the C-suite. They're founders or they're running an organization, but they're also generals or people in the trenches, um, and they, they need to know this stuff, too. So what can... Let's help them learn from some of your past missteps. Well, so many of the missteps we've made have been honest missteps where somebody felt that we hadn't communicated properly. And communication, I've, as I've learned over many, many years, is at least as much what you take in to your two ears as what you put out of your one mouth. Right. And I think that most of the time that we have made mistakes where trust was diminished are somehow connected to people not having felt heard. Uh, here's an example. Uh, this one goes back many years. But um, there was a, a guest at, at uh, a former restaurant of ours who uh, loved to bring in his own wines. And he was told as soon as he got to the restaurant in front of his six guests that the restaurant had changed their wine policy, their corkage policy, and he was now only allowed to have two of his wines opened and that for every wine he would have to have opened, we would charge him this much money and he would also have to order a wine from our list. I can assume that didn't go over well. It not only didn't go over well, but um, it was embarrassing to him and when he wrote to complain about it, the person on our team who wrote him back uh, didn't make him feel hurt. And the problem kept getting worse and worse and worse till about three or four letters later, I got involved. Well, I guess you're lucky, or how, maybe you tell me you have, how you feel. I, I would feel lucky to get subsequent letters. Right? rather than that person just being burnt and never coming back ever and telling all of his friends that this is the worst place that he's ever And been. this is somebody who loved going to our restaurants yeah. and loved bringing his friends to a lot of our restaurants. And he actually said, I'm never, because of this one experience at this one restaurant, I'm never going to any of your restaurants yeah, again. you're dead to me. I think that got my attention. Yeah. And uh, it ended up with a lot of listening. And what I realized was, we had, our team members had unwittingly gotten involved in a, a tit for tat kind of, you know, Power struggle. fight to be right. Yeah. And there were all these voices, like on one hand, the customer's always right, which is nonsense. No one's always right. And I'm right, so how, how come the restaurant's making me, you know, give, if you give an inch to this guy, he's gonna want a yard. And I'm just going, guys, this is ridiculous. This is to it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's just let, let him feel heard. It's not that hard to do it. And I really, really try to urge our, our restaurants. I dare them to try to put us out of business by being generous to the guest. Put us out of business by taking four corks out of his bottles instead of two. Just try it. See if that puts us out of business. Yeah, I mean... And, and or if you want to, 
don't take any corks out of his bottle and see if that puts us out of business. I'll take the former any day over the latter. So it ended up where we finally invited this gentleman to this restaurant. I said, we need to have a, we need to have a glass of wine together. Pick any bottle from our wine list here. I wanted to bring him to a different restaurant so that it would be a whole different venue. Right. And I said, pick any wine you want. Let's have a glass of wine. I want to find a way to put this story behind us. I promise you we will. But first, I need to hear everything. And I just made it very clear to him. I'm on your side. Let me have it. And let's get a fresh start. And that story ended up having a very, very happy outcome because not too long thereafter, we were in the process of closing our Indian restaurant called Tabla. And we wanted to sell everything from the restaurant. The one thing that was really hard to sell was this gorgeous mosaic that was on the wall. Doesn't the same gentleman buy the mosaic off the wall and install it in his, his home in Brooklyn? Wow. <laughs> so the story had a really happy ending. Oh, that's great. So Union Square, would you call it a franchise? How would you describe your, your business model? Is it like... Oh, it's absolutely not a franchise. franchise. Well, I don't mean it's franchise a, in the sense that you franchise the, less, the, um, the restaurants out, correct. but that it is a franchise brand. Like Union Square is a brand into itself in your building. I would building call it an enterprise. enterprise. Okay. Union Square Hospitality Group is an enterprise. Right. It's a collection of hospitality businesses. The reason I don't say restaurants is... We have a jazz club, Jazz Standard. That's not a restaurant. We have a big catering and events business called Union Square Events. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting to is, so how do you decide? And I'm just thinking, again, trying to see it through the eyes of people who might be on a similar path as you, but maybe smaller scale. Like, so they, you know, they're in their lane right now, and they're thinking about widening, widening that lane. How do you um, decide that you're going to open a jazz club or something else that's not food-related, you know? under that umbrella brand. Yeah, I, I think that it gets back to the word passion. Okay. And so if I look back at the many, many yes decisions we've made episodically, including Myelino, where we're sitting right now, they almost always connect either to something I'm very passionate about or have been in my life or to something that someone on our team is passionate about. So I love living in Rome for a year and a half. Let's do a Roman restaurant. I love going to the horse races. Let's serve Shake Shack and tacos and drinks up at Saratoga Racetrack. I love baseball. Why not open four or five concession stands and change the way people eat at ballparks as we did at City Field yeah. and as we've done uh, in Washington and in Houston. I love art. Why not open at the Museum of Modern Art and the Whitney Museum of American Art? And so, so many, I love parks. That's what led to Shake Shack. I love hot dogs. That's what led to Shake Shack as well with a hot dog cart. And I think that as you look to unlock your passion, there's, there's the big capital P, which might be your career path. But then within that career path, there are many, many estuaries that you can take that also tap into things that you love and you've always loved and then I think the fun thing to do is to say, how can I take something I've always loved and apply what I've learned I'm pretty good at so that it feeds me while I feed it? Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's an amazing thing when someone says, 
I love going to City Field to see the Mets, but even when they lose, I love eating your food. Or I love, yeah. I love going to art museums, but now I finally got my kids to want to go there because of your cafe. So there's some really subtle, smart business strategies woven in there that I think are really clever and really good lessons. You know, one of them is what you just kind of said, combining your passion with what you're already good at. You know, these sort of natural iterations, whether that's with baseball or uh, a destination country. But what, do you, what advice do you give to someone? This is an extreme example, but like, what do you give to uh, advice to the guy uh, or woman that is like, I love baseball, and so I'm going to invest in a baseball team. You know, that's like so far off the reservation. You know, like, how do you strike that balance? Well, I, I, I don't think baseball is necessarily the template we need to look at, but I think for any subject matter, there are many adjacencies that, that you could think about um, that, that may not be, just because I love art doesn't mean that I come close to having what it takes to be an artist, but I can promise you that we don't have one restaurant where you're not gonna see art. You also, it's not just did you find your passion, but are you feeding yourself? Are you learning more? Are you feeling great? I think, I think a lot of leaders don't remember what we call the oxygen mask theory, which is you gotta put the oxygen mask on yourself if you wanna take care of others. That's right. And so by knowing that I love all the things I love, if I surround myself with those things, even in my business life, or maybe especially in my business life, I think it actually fuels my ability to, to stay highly energized as I, as I go about business. You know, if we decide to really diversify what we're doing, like, is there a, I mean, the analogy in my mind, my mind works with metaphors and analogies. I think when I took my young kids bowling, we used to put those guardrails up, you know. They would bowl and throw the ball anywhere they wanted, but they had, they had the guardrails up and would ping off them and stay within the confines of that alley. Um, what I'm talking about is how do you know whether or not you should bowl, throw that ball two, three, four lanes over there, you know what I mean, um, and diversify what you're doing. Like, you know, would you ever get into a non-hospitality, non-food kind of business? Does that make sense? If not, why not, you know? Well, it actually does make sense, but I think still the overlay is hospitality. I think too often people think the word hospitality specifically means food and beverage and hotels and lodging. I believe every business is the hospitality business because I believe the internet has commoditized everything because there's no more secrets under the sun. And now that everyone can find out how to do something just as well as you do it pretty quickly, I think the, the distinctive factor in your business is how do you make your stakeholders feel? How do you make it feel to work there? How do you make it feel for your customers, your community, your suppliers, and your investors? And therefore, um, when I think about how we might diversify beyond restaurants, beyond, beyond what's classically thought of as the hospitality business. We've just launched a fund called Enlightened Hospitality Investments, not specifically to invest in food, but to invest in businesses whose cultures prioritize their stakeholders the way we do, which is putting your employees first as a way to have great customer service, as a way to have a richer top line with which you can take care of your community and your suppliers, as a way to have the best products make the most money as a reason for your investors to want to re-up giving your own team the opportunity to grow. So yeah. we look for businesses that do that and we're building a portfolio of, of companies 
and already we've, we have invested in businesses that do not make food. I love this so far. It's, it's amazing and it, it really rings true that every business, and especially I wish the airline business would get in the um, hospitality business quickly. Um, hopefully they'll pay attention and be watching this and, and learn a few things. Um, some airlines are better than others, but you're right. It definitely does translate to everything, everything that touches people. And it actually gives me a little bit of comfort knowing that, you know, the robots are coming, um, but still you can't replace humans. You know, the, the way that I feel when I come in a restaurant or the way the food makes me feel brings back memories. Um, talk about how, you know, and we watched you come into the restaurant a little bit, how you're interacting with the guests and they see you and they're excited to see you. But how do you... You were watching that? Well, yeah, we have eyes everywhere. We know what's happening. But I guess what I'm specifically asking is, how do you know how to deal with each kind of individual person? Because I'll bet that you know, well, this person likes to be talked to, and this person likes to be left alone when they're eating. You know, I think I heard you say once, I don't know when, you can see people light up. You know, can you talk about that a little bit, reading people? Service, as we know it, is a way to describe the technical delivery of the product. Hospitality is a way to describe the emotional feelings connected to the service experience. So in service, one size fits all. We have a service manual at every single restaurant, and it's different at every single restaurant. It could be that at Blue Smoke, our barbecue restaurant, the hostess brings you to your table with menu in hand and gives you your menu. We would never do that at the modern uh, two-star Michelin restaurant. However, the hospitality manual is the same everywhere. And in hospitality, one size fits one. Why? Because if hospitality is defined by a sense that I'm on your side, I have to acknowledge that every person out there has different needs. And being on your side might be completely different than being on this person's side or that person's side. So how do you teach people to be able to read those signs? And we actually teach a class um, called Creating Raves for outside people. They come into our, our, business, our business. I think we do this about four or five times a year. And it's different businesses, most of which are not restaurants. And they learn from each other, but they also learn our curriculum. And one of the things we teach in this class called Creating Raves is it's called Reading Signs. And it's a belief that every human being is wearing an invisible sign. And the headline is, make me feel important by, colon. And the subtitle is where the genius comes in, by leaving me alone, by letting me tell you everything I know about wine, by giving me a reading light so I can show you the book I'm reading. Everybody's got that sign. And so we really try to hire people who have the emotional skills to be really, really good sign readers. And it's not that hard. Can I put you on the spot? Can you, what, what sign am I holding up? I'm afraid to ask. Uh, your sign says, I'm really good at, at what I do, and I want to make sure that my audience knows that, and I'm going to prove it to you by how much information I can get out of every single person I ever interview in a way that makes them feel comfortable. You have a long subtitle. Okay, I'll take that. That's a very nice compliment. Um, and so you're looking for people with emotional intelligence, the um, soft skills, the skills that people, I think, under, undervalue. The and kind of people that, that, that understand that while the golden rule that we all grew up with says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, 
pretty good. That the golden rule of hospitality, on the other hand, says, do unto others as you believe they would want done unto them. Right. And so these are people who, when they were kids and they made Nestle's chocolate chip cookies, just like I'm sure your kids did. Great thing for kids, right? They learn math, they learn to follow instructions, they learn not to burn themselves, they get good cookies out of the deal, right? But I wanna hire the, the kid who, when she grew up, was the one who, when they made those cookies, the greatest pleasure they got was presenting them to me and mom, doing something for me. Right. And when you have people who are happier themselves when they're making other people feel better, it's really not that hard to do this. I love that. Uh, great lessons there. It makes my, my mind think of so many other things. Um, and maybe you could just verbalize it for me so that, because I have an idea, because you said it earlier, the customer isn't always right. So why isn't the customer always right? Because no one's always right. It's, it's dishonest to say that. It's demoralizing to tell your employees the customer is always right. What if the customer is being abusive of one of your staff members? Am I, am I to tell you that the customer is always right? Sure. Once, yeah. once we start saying we, they're always right, but we're going to make exceptions, we're already wrong. So I just feel it's so much more important to say it's irrelevant who's right and wrong. What matters more than anything is the customer must always feel heard. Yeah. And I feel the same way as a parent. My kids are not always going to agree with the decisions that my wife and I make, but hopefully they'll always feel heard. But let's talk about systems a little bit in, in different areas of your life. Let's get a little bit personal now. You know, like when things go wrong or, you know, uh, you know something happens, uh, emotional or physical or whatnot. Can you talk about some of the systems that you have in place? What do you do when that happens? You know, like you have a go-to power song. <laughs> like, do you, you know, do you eat a certain meal? Like, talk about the systems and processes you have in place personally, not, you know, not corporate-wide um, to repair, but personally. Well, I think things go wrong every day, and I like that. I mean, I, I, when, when you say things go wrong, I really feel like my view is that things didn't go as expected. Yeah. And I almost always look for ways to capitalize on what didn't go as expected. Maybe there's a learning opportunity. Maybe there's a way to end up in a better place by virtue of how we handled it. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was absolutely floored to learn that one of our restaurants received a C letter grade from the Department of Health. That just doesn't happen in this company. We get straight A's. And I know the judgments that I often have when I'm walking down a street and I see a C in the window, I just assume the place must be filthy and that nobody's home. Well, it turned out that this restaurant, this being the beginning of summer, had a burst of fruit flies. And wouldn't you know it, it happened right when the health inspector was there. It kind of happens all over New York City. And we got a C. And so I saw that. I was really, really upset about it because that's not who we are and I don't want to send off that message. And I said, maybe we can handle this differently than other restaurants would. We could either sit back on our haunches and wait for some blog to say, gotcha, these guys are terrible. Or at which point we're going to be in a defensive posture explaining it, or we can play offense with this whole thing and just go out on social media and say, here's what happened. It's fixed. Can't wait to get reinspected again. Little sense of humor about the whole thing. Yeah. Pesky fruit flies. 
And that's what we did. And so I think that to your question, when things don't go as expected or when things do go wrong, immediately I shift into a sense of, okay, I can't change what happened, but I can write the next chapter. Yeah. Has it always been that way, though? I mean, here you are now, and I guess sort of embedded in this reply is another question, which is, you know, is it, is it easier to be you now, now that you have some history and a track record and, and a degree of success, versus when you first got started and, you, and you, you know, it was all blue skies? and It's always going to work out in the end. I don't, I don't know what all the chapters are going to be like, yeah. but I know the book's going to have a pretty happy ending. Yeah, Nietzsche was right. You know, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I guess what I wanted to really tap into is that the systems, because you know, in your early years when you didn't have this track record and you hadn't run the gauntlet, um, stuff happened, right? And it's nice to be able to think about, you know, with fresh eyes. Oh, you know, if if I get lemons, I'm making lemonade. But like, you must have had or developed systems to um, to overcome those obstacles. And I'm just trying to see if we can. There's there's really only one system, yeah. and it's what we call the five A's: being aware of the screw up, acknowledging that you did it, apologizing acting to fix it, and then applying additional generosity. Is it something that came all at once, like you know, a light bulb moment, or, or did that evolve over time? And, and the reason I'm asking, again, I'm thinking about people who are you know, just getting started or perhaps trying to figure out, put the puzzle together, try to codify it for them a little bit. You know, no, it's, it's, a, it's a highly iterative process. Final advice to, to young entrepreneurs. Biggest piece of advice I would give to anyone who sees themselves as being an entrepreneur is this. Occupy your bridges. You've heard the expression many, many times about people who are too big for their britches. I think there's a number of people who are too small for their britches because they haven't figured out what their britches are. And once you figure out what your britches are, what is that thing that you know? What's the problem that has bugged you your whole life that you have a solution for? All I did was basically say, whoever wrote the rule that you can't eat well while we're being nice to you. Whoever wrote the rule that nice people can't serve good food. And once you figure out what your britches are, occupy them, and then have the courage to, to not jip the rest of the world out of your magic.